ministry. Well, I have to be honest uh, with you when, I, when we talk about the verse for the month that we have this month. Uh, just to be candid, this has been a verse that has been on my heart and on my mind in the, probably the last 18 to 20 months of our lives as we have literally been walking in this verse it's one of those things where when I wake up in the morning that song that we've been singing at the beginning of service the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases that is what's going through my mind throughout the day because to be honest with you there is no way that I'd be able to walk uh, through the season that he has us in if these truths were not true in our lives and so as we prepare to say our verse for the month together this morning, let's reflect on the power of what these words mean for our daily lives. All right, here we go. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Lamentations 3, 22-23. Very good, thank you. And I, and I hear some thighs in there, and that's okay. That's all right. We can have the King James Version. We're okay with that. And we've been studying the book of John in light of the reason for which it is written. And we are coming to the conclusion of John chapter 9 today. And remember that these things were written that you might believe. And that in believing, we may have life in his name. And last week, we looked at a neat little trick that we can use to try to remember the first 10 chapters of the book of John. How do you memorize a book of the Bible? Maybe some of you are shocked when you hear and we talk about the reality that the Pharisees, the Sadducees, many of the religious leaders, and and many of the Jews back in the day had entire portions of the Old Testament memorized. And you think, oh, I could never memorize an entire portion of Scripture. Well, there's little memorization tricks that can sometimes help, and this is one, just understanding how a book flows and comes together. And so we said there were 10 W words that we can remember that can help us to remember the outline of the first 10 chapters of John. So in the beginning was the word. Good. Jesus in John chapter 2 turned the water into? Good. For God so loved the? world in John chapter 3 right and in John chapter 4 Jesus meets the woman at the well very good John chapter 5 talks about the many witnesses to Jesus good and in John chapter 6 Jesus feeds the 5,000 in a new wilderness good John chapter 7 Jesus says I am the living water good John chapter 8 begins with the woman who's caught in adultery John chapter 9, where we're in, where we're concluding today, Jesus heals the blind man whole. And in John chapter 10, Jesus is the good shepherd and sheep have wool. Very good. So if that helps you at all, remember the first 10 chapters of John. It's certainly helping me, and I hope those W words help you. I can't promise that we're going to continue them through all 21 chapters of John. I, I just don't know uh, if, 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 I, if I'm able to do that, but... At least for the first 10 chapters, it works. As we conclude this portion of John 9 today, it's amazing that this question that's pervaded this entire section of John, John chapter 7 through John chapter 10, is continued to be fleshed out right here in the passage that we're going to look at today. Who is 
Jesus. And it's going to continue all the way through our study next week where we begin in John chapter 10 answering this question of who is Jesus. So if you have your Bibles today, take them, turn them to John chapter 9. We're going to be in John chapter 9 verses 35 to 41. John chapter 9 verses 35 to 41. Lord, we gather around your word this morning as a body of Christ who recognizes, as we said in our statement of faith together this morning, Lord, that your word, your word, Lord, is powerful. Lord, we believe, we believe that your word is living. We believe that it's active. Lord, we believe that you intend to use your word to change us. We even see the evidence of that in this chapter that we've been studying the last three weeks. Indeed, Lord, you use the words of Jesus to transform this blind man's life. And Father, we gather knowing that today you can use your words in the same exact way in our lives, calling us out of darkness calling us into light, causing us to walk in your ways, to follow you in obedience, to be compelled by the love that we've been shown in Christ Jesus, to live in a way that would be honoring to you. Lord, our our desire as we gather around your word is that you would use it to help us grow, to help us grow in a greater love for you and a greater love to all of the people who you place in our pathways on any given day. Father, it's with this anticipation that we come to your word now. We pray that your spirit would work in our hearts and our minds. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. John chapter 9, verses 35 to 41. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And having found him, this is the blind man, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who you are speaking to. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. And Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things, and they said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, We see, your guilt remains. As we open our text this morning, Jesus knows this man's plight. He was keenly aware of the need that this man had when he sat blind and begging at the city gates and now as a castaway of his community Jesus is aware of his needs and he's aware of his need to understand his true identity who am I they had cast him out a consequence that came swiftly and with little discourse There was no trial. There was no one to come to this man's defense. He was simply cast out, removed from the fellowship of the people who he best knew. And as we were reminded last week, though they had cast him out, 
Jesus will be shown to be faithful to his word. John 6, 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Psalm 27, 10, for my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. As they had casted out this man, so too would they soon cast out and cast aside their Messiah. The light of the world would be cast to hang on the cross. And we're confronted with a harsh reality in our text this morning. At the very onset of this passage, that those who are transformed by the power of Jesus will often be viewed as social castaways. Those who are transformed by the power of Jesus will often be viewed as social castaways in the cultures and the communities in which they live. In in John's immediate cultural and social political context, it would be opposition from the Jewish authorities that would come to a person who claimed to be a disciple of Jesus. Jesus did not meet the Jewish authorities' expectations for what a Messiah should be. But church, what we understand and what we should understand today as we gather is that Jesus today does not meet our cultural expectations for what a Messiah should be either. Now think with me, if our culture today were to define our culture, the world that we live in, if they were to define their Messiah, what their Messiah should look like, who he would be, in their eyes, it would be a woman or a man who accepts anyone's earnest plea. Regardless of who they pray to, regardless of how they live, or who or what they worship. The key characteristics or character traits of our modern cultural Messiah would be a man or a woman who is fair. But fair according to our standards of fairness and not God's. It would be a person who's accepting of all behaviors, all lifestyles, able to blend with all different religions. Any Messiah less than this as defined by true believers, will most likely be met with great criticism and disdain by the culture and the world that we live in. For we have come to determine in our world today that we are better at determining our own needs than the God who created the world and the fullness thereof. The true Messiah, friends, as we've seen over and over and over again in this book, the true Messiah, Jesus, who he really is, he has created division. And there's division here in our text between those who know him, children of light, and those who don't know him, children of darkness. So here's how Jesus acts. Hearing the man had been cast out by the Jews, Jesus goes and finds him. Take note here, there's an interesting observation in John chapter 9. The man in need does not come to Jesus. Do you see that in this chapter? Do you notice that? At the beginning of the chapter, he's at the gate. He's blind, he's begging. Jesus finds him. 
And now here at the end of the chapter, he's been cast out of the synagogue. And once again, Jesus finds him. Friends, before we're born again, truly born from above, we will never seek Jesus of our own power or volition. And the Bible says we are never seeking him, friends. John chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, this is our life prior to being transformed by the power of Jesus. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. Jesus finds us. And when he finds us, take a look at the state he finds us in. Much like the state he found this man in at the gate. And you, this is us church, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins and once you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And when he finds us, he calls us towards genuine belief and confession while it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. And friends, church, our lives as believers, they should come to be defined by love. We say this often, but it's important. It should be ruminating in our minds. Children of love, compelled by Christ with a nature of love. No longer are we in darkness. Now, because of Jesus, we walk in the light. And there's an interesting observation here in this passage. When Jesus finds this man who had been cast out, does he throw a pity party for him? No. Oh, does he allow the man to wallow in his own self-pity and worthlessness? Does, he, does Jesus throw stones at those who cast him out? Oh, those Pharisees, they did it again. Is he placing blame I mean, imagine the identity crisis that this man is experiencing. And let's start with the reality that he had been blind from birth up until a few moments ago. And that's how this man had been known by everyone. That's just the blind guy that sits at the gate and begs. He completely transformed. No longer blind. No longer at the gate. Who is this guy? Does he even know anymore? Surely he must have thought in his mind, surely somebody that's been through that kind of transformation would believe that his own people would rejoice and celebrate if his life had been transformed by somebody. Excitedly, he, he probably believed he would be received as he shared with the religious leaders all of the good things that had happened to him and that they would celebrate together the work of God in his life. Maybe even worshiping the Lord together in a celebration. A joyous occasion. A true Jew, once blind, now has sight. They cast him out. They cast him out. And is there any BCD behavior going on here? We talked about that before. BCD, blame, complain, defend. Remember we say we want to eliminate that. It's not helpful for anything. I don't see any of that going on here. It's completely absent. Jesus doesn't allow for it. He gives it no plat platform here. Instead, Jesus cuts to the heart of the matter with the most important question that could ever be asked 
of any man or any woman in their lifetime. No time for pity party. Look at the question in verse 35. What does he say? Do you believe in the Son of Man? Do you believe? Having found the man, he doesn't say, oh, you poor guy. Oh, you've been treated so unfairly. Oh, are you okay? Have your emotions been triggered? Here, do you want to use my phone and tweet about it? That may make you feel better. There's none of that. There's none of that going on here. Rather, it's this. The sincere question. The most important question for any of our lives. Do you place your trust in the Son of Man? And the man's response highlights both the minor theme that we see here in John chapter 7 through 10 and the major theme of the entire book. Who is Jesus? And why has this been written? What does he say in verse 36? Who is he, sir, that I might believe in him? These things were written that you might believe. The Gospel of John Not even written yet at this time. But the power of Jesus' words are no less effective to those who truly belong to Him. John chapter 6, verses 28 and 29, they said to Jesus, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus said, this is the work of God. This is the work of God. Not your work. This is the work of God. That you believe in Him whom he has sent. Now go back to the scenario. Something of magnificent beauty is happening here. I love when the word of God unfolds like this before us. And the power of Jesus' words. Jesus never used one word on accident. Never wasted one word. He calls himself what? Son of Man. And we asked this question a few weeks ago at the beginning of this chapter, why do we suffer? You remember we asked at the very beginning of John chapter 9 because the question manifested itself when the disciples saw the blind man. You remember they saw him and they said to Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Do you think that this man in this moment perhaps was suffering a bit, even though he had been healed, now considered a social castaway by the people whom he was closest to? Would you be suffering a bit? Sure, you'd be rejoicing that you have sight, but how would you feel that no one who previously knew you accepted you anymore? Completely rejected you, cast you out. An amazing thing happens and you get kicked to the curb by your own people. Jesus doesn't allow for a pity party. He identifies himself to him. And he identifies himself in a subtle way that shows that he is able to empathize with man in his current state of suffering and rejection as a castaway. Do you believe in the Son of Man? Son of Man. Mark chapter 8, verse 31, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders. You notice the same people that rejected and cast away Jesus were the same people that rejected and cast away 
this man, I think Jesus could empathize with him. Matthew chapter 8, 20, this man had no social standing anymore. Jesus said, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And, and let's not overlook this fact. Who has the authority to forgive this man's sins? Mark chapter 2, verse 10, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said this to the paralytic in the book of Mark. Is the Son of Man able to heal and forgive sins even on the Sabbath? Remember, that's when this took place, on the Sabbath. And, and does the fact that this healing occurred on the Sabbath in any way discredit or disqualify this miracle's power or authority? Mark chapter 2, verse 28. The Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Oh, the Son of Man was one who was uniquely qualified to walk alongside this man in this season of difficulty. And friends, church, as we sit here today, that is still true today. Do you suffer sometimes? Do you have despair sometimes? Maybe some difficult seasons of life, grief, loss. The Son of Man, He endured these things. He is uniquely qualified to walk through us in these seasons of life. Man says in, in verse 37, or in verse 36, Who is He, sir, that I may believe in Him? And look at Jesus' response in verse 37. Jesus said, You have seen Him, and it is He who is speaking to you. Not only is this formerly blind man now seeing Jesus, but he's also hearing the words of Jesus. The Pharisees didn't hear Jesus. They heard him, but they didn't truly hear. Romans 10, 17, faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So his response should not come as a surprise to us standing face to face with the healer of both his eyes and the healer of his soul he confesses in verse 38, he says, Lord, I believe. And I tell you that everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man, also will acknowledge before the angels of God. In this very moment, this man's salvation is secure no longer coming to be known as the blind man at the gate, but now as one transformed by the power of Jesus, a castaway by men, a child of God. Transformation. Acknowledging that Jesus is Lord here is one thing, but what follows his confession is evidence of his genuine faith. He confesses, Lord, I believe. And then what does he immediately do? At the end of verse 38, he worships. There's no time to wait. Church, this is, this is what defines children of light. This is what sets us apart from children of darkness. Children of light confess Jesus as Lord 
And what follows their confession is worship. Because that is our obedient response to a life that's been transformed by the power of Jesus. Obedience that's now motivated by love because of this great fear that we have and this great thankfulness that we have for this God who has saved us. And it's interesting, this is a private conversation that Jesus is having with this man here. Uh, but, but there are some that are close enough to hear this encounter and what's going on. And, and observe what's taking place. This is one of those things, were you ever in a restaurant before and you were having a talk with somebody that was a private conversation that you really didn't intend for other people around you to hear, but as you're finishing your conversation, somebody turns around near you, a stranger often. I couldn't help but over here, <laughs> no, no. But the response of the Pharisees here in verses 39 to 41 will highlight the reality of the division that's apparent between the children who walk in light and those who walk in darkness. Look down at verse 39. Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see and that those who see may become blind. Now what happens? Somebody's triggered. It's usually the Pharisees. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? Sarcastic. Jesus said, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see your guilt remains. Jesus wraps up his discussion with this man in verse 39 by saying, for judgment I came in to this world that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. Jesus was allowed to execute this judgment. John chapter 5 verse 27, and he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. You see a theme here? Son of man, son of man, son of man. And the judgment was this. In John chapter 3, Jesus announced his judgment. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. And you know what hit me for the first time this week? I love when this happens. You read a passage a thousand times. How many times have you read John chapter 3? And this hit me for the first time. Jesus, yes, every time I've read this, I've thought he's talking about the unsaved people in the world that like to live in darkness. But he's talking to Nicodemus. Jesus is talking about the Pharisees and the religious leaders. The ones who thought they were most spiritual. The ones who thought they were the religious leaders of the day. The elitist. The most pious. They were the most spiritually wicked. Those who took pride in the belief that they were beacons of light to the people actually were walking in darkness as blind guides, and Jesus called them out on it. Matthew chapter 15, 
He called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand, it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person. The church struggled with that, by the way. But what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. Then the disciples came to him and said, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard you say this? And he answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. The Pharisees and the religious leaders, they thought they were able to see, but really they had become blind The light of the world stood before them, shining as a beacon in their presence, healing the lame, restoring the sight of the blind, feeding the multitudes, calming the storms. He's offering his body to them in John chapter 6. And in the pride of their sight, they became blind. Church, let's pray that their example is not found in our life patterns the pharisees thought that their works their outward appearances of godliness following the law that that would somehow save them we don't go to church we don't cuss we don't drink we don't watch these things we don't listen to this music we don't dress this way or that way we don't even have cable First Corinthians ten twelve. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. Proverbs sixteen eighteen. They must have forgotten this one. Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. And this is my favorite. Proverbs twenty six twelve. Do you see a man who's wise in his own eyes? There's more hope for a fool than for him. Oh, that the Pharisees would have stood in the street corners and instead of praying, would have called themselves fools. And they're an example to us, church. They're a mirror reflecting back on us all of our desires to appear self-righteous, self-justified, morally pure, full of good works. And church, their example spilled over into the early church and sadly is still a part of the church today. Clear evidence of this is found in the book of Revelation where there was a church who took great pride in their efforts. Some of you will remember this church. We're going to go look at this passage. But I believe that this would have been the very church that would have stood before Jesus and said, Lord, Lord, look at all the great things that we did for you. Let's see what Jesus had to say to them. Keep your finger in John 9, but turn with me to Revelation chapter 3. Last book of the New Testament. Keep your your bookmark in John 9, but we're going to come back. But flip to Revelation chapter 3. All these great works make us look so good. We can see, we can see. Revelation 3, verses 15 to 19. Take a look at how Jesus responds to this proud church. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. 
would it be that you either were cold or hot? So because you're lukewarm and neither hot or cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Good for nothing, self-righteous works that are neither hot nor cold, wrong motivations, wrong intentions, wrong actions. Jesus, look at me. We're right. We're prospering. We need nothing. And what's Jesus say in John chapter 15? Apart from me, you can do nothing. Forgetting that which they've been saved from and that which we have been saved to. Wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. The riches that come from Christ, friends, come through the adversity of fire. I'll say that again. The riches that come from Christ come through the adversity of of fire. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire. The blood of Jesus covering us as white garments, hiding our shame and our nakedness as Jesus hid Adam and Eve's nakedness in the garden. So too does his blood hide ours. His mercy, his compassion, his loving kindness working as a salve to open our eyes that we may see. Every once in a while when we're studying the Bible at the cafe, we'll, we'll find a stranger and we'll ask them the question, what are your two biggest needs? And you know, people will come up with all different answers to that question. Oh, my car broke down last week. I need a job. This, that. The other thing, sometimes it's health problems. And we try to take them back to sin and death. They're two biggest problems. Sorry, they're two biggest problems being sin and death. Do you know how many times that believers want to argue with us about that? It's shocking. We've had believers storm out of the cafe angry at us already. Because they, well, we don't have to worry about those things anymore. Well, sure. Yes, Jesus saved us from those things. Absolutely. Be thankful. But let's not forget. 2 Peter chapter 2, or 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 9, whoever lacks these qualities, and you can read the context on your own of what those qualities are, is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Let us never forget. Our two biggest problems are sin and death, and absolutely Jesus saves them from them, and, and, and we don't have to worry about them anymore, but we should be thankful. We should not forget that which we've been saved from. Remaining humble, being thankful. These were things the Pharisees had neglected. 
We should ever be reminded that Jesus did not come to a world that realized its desperate peril and great need for a Savior. He did not come into a world like that. He did not come to a people who were eager to confess and repent of their sins. It's not the kind of people that Jesus came to. Yet, friends, church, his example should serve as a striking reminder to the humility that we are called to walk in day by day. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. One will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And we want to walk around all arrogant and prideful. Friends, I include myself because I'm there sometimes. I live there sometimes. Just to be honest with you and transparent as a pastor, it happens. I forget. And back in John 9, you can flip back to John 9. Some of the Pharisees who heard these things, they they got a bit offended, didn't they? Are we also blind? And I I think it's interesting, Jesus could have piled on here. Yes, you get it. That's what I've been telling you all along. But they're not asking this question genuinely, are they? They're asking it in sarcasm believing that they were seeing more clearly than anyone else who could have come to them in those days. They essentially are screaming at Jesus as blind man, we can see, we can see. And Jesus in verse 41, he lets their own words indict them. They indict themselves with their own words. In verse 41, he just uses them right against them. Jesus said, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. Jesus didn't need to condemn them. They were a condemnation unto themselves. They were blind, so blind and so ignorant to their own condition. And many of them, friends, sadly, would never taste the sweet fruit of salvation that many of us in this room have found in the Son of Man who was standing in their presence. And though he was with them, their guilt remained. And so we ask this question so often, how might our lives look in light of these realities? Jesus found this man, a castaway who was once blind, transformed by Jesus, but still cast out by the people that knew him best. He found him rejected, perhaps suffering. And friends, he's deeply acquainted to walk alongside of him in those seasons. And as I said before, I'd say it again, no matter how you sit here today, if you sit here with great joy, rejoice. Jesus is uniquely acquainted to walk alongside of you in your seasons of great joy he's victorious amen he knows victory he knows joy those are part of who he is but have you been rejected have you 
suffered? Have you felt despair? Perhaps even by someone who you dearly love. Jesus is uniquely acquainted with those feelings and is able to walk alongside of you in those seasons as well. He patiently endured the scorn of man all the way through his trial and the crucifixion on the cross. He knows what it's like to be afflicted, to be wounded. It's interesting, one of the brothers that walked in this morning shared a song with me that really, I I didn't even realize how much it fit this passage until he shared it, but when he shared it, it just made everything come alive. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. As the team comes this morning, let's pray. Father God, We are so thankful for the testimony of your word. We are so thankful for the power of your son, Jesus. For what he's accomplished for us. For the work that he's done on our behalf. For giving us sight. For restoring us. For healing us. For saving us. And Lord, as difficult as his suffering and his sacrifice was, in some ways we're thankful that he is acquainted to walk through us in our seasons of difficulty as well. Helping us turn our eyes to him and focus on the things that are above, not on the things of this earth. Help us to do that, Jesus. It's in your name we pray.